us a lot to cover this morning. So let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for another day. Thank you for the opportunity again to come together and worship, to learn from your word. Pray that uh, we would learn more of who you are and what you have accomplished on our behalf, that our salvation is all by grace through Christ, and we are thankful for that. Pray that you would grow us in our boldness to proclaim the gospel and point others uh, to the only hope that is in Christ. And pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, covered uh, the first three points in those steps or the uh, order of salvation. Those were election, calling, and regeneration. Today, I'm going to finish up the last six points, uh, and I've listed those on today's study guide uh, from last week's study guide. Conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. And I mentioned last week that several of these points or steps uh, probably occur, now they do occur simultaneously rather than some strict chronological order, uh, particularly uh, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, and adoption. It all pretty much takes place at the same time. Just uh, keep that in mind as we address each point, remembering it's not just a strict chronological order. So last week we ended with regeneration, God bringing someone uh, who is spiritually dead to spiritual life so that they are then able to respond positively to the gospel call. Uh, this then brings us to conversion. So conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sin and place our trust in Christ alone for salvation. Conversion is essentially spiritual change or turning, turning away from sin and rebellion against Christ and turning to trusting in and following and obeying Christ. Simply put, turning away from sin is repentance, turning away or turning to Christ is faith. Both of these elements are necessary for true conversion to take place and you can say that uh, you can't have one without the other. Where there's true repentance, there will be faith. And uh, where there is sincere faith, there will have been true repentance. And Jesus emphasized this uh, some of his first words that were spoken at the beginning of his public ministry. Mark 1.15, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So first, let's consider repentance. What that's all about, a definition of repentance is a true sorrow over sin and unbelief, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it, and to trust and walk in obedience to Christ. It involves the knowledge that sin is wrong, agreement with what Scripture teaches about sin, true hearts true sorrow and hatred for sin, and that's an emotional aspect of repentance that is legitimate, and then the decision to turn from that sin, renounce that sin, forsake that sin, and at the same time to decide to believe in, to believe in, to trust in Christ, and to walk in obedience. So true repentance will then result in a changed uh, life that is no longer characterized by sin and unbelief, but increasingly 
it will be characterized by growing trust, growing obedience and righteousness. Jesus says this in Matthew 3.8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that fruit is evidence of true repentance, evidence of true repentance and faith in Christ. And I want to emphasize again that um, just experiencing sorrow over sinful actions is not necessarily genuine repentance unless there is an actual uh, turning away from that sin and turning to Christ. That's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 when he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is essentially sorrow over the consequences and the effects of sin, as well as likely fear of punishment, but it doesn't actually result in renouncing and turning away from sin. So the other side of conversion is faith that is placed in Christ, or saving faith, we call that. This faith requires that we know, again, who Christ is and what he's done. There uh, does need to be a basic knowledge of the facts of the gospel. Uh, but saving faith is more than just knowledge because Satan and the demons know all the facts about God and they know who Jesus is, they know what Jesus did, what he's going to do, but um, that knowledge certainly doesn't save them. And again, that's the point in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So it's not even enough to agree with or believe the facts, know the facts, believe the facts, although that also is necessary. Um, for example, the Bible teaches that Jesus came to die for sin, and I agree with that. I agree that that is what he came to do. I believe it, but uh, knowledge of the facts and believing and agreeing with the facts is not saving faith. It's part of it, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith does require that knowledge and belief, uh, that the facts are true, but then in addition, um, a person has to place their trust in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Saving faith can be defined as trust in Jesus Christ as a living person uh, for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life uh, with God. That's a definition from Grudem's theology text. And I would add that trust for forgiveness of sin and eternal life uh, has to be in Christ alone without the thought that we can contribute or add anything uh, to our salvation. So again, there does have to be an understanding of what sin is, that sin has separated us from relationship with God, that relationship that we were created for. has to be an understanding of the guilt that we uh, bear for sin, an understanding of God's wrath and the eternal judgment that will be poured out on sin, and that only through a personal faith in, trust in Christ, can that guilt and judgment be removed. And through trust in Christ, uh, can we be granted forgiveness and eternal life and a right relationship with God. Some of the passages that emphasize particularly uh, personal trust in the living person of Christ 
So John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Colossians 2.6 says, therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And the idea here is that just as you would receive a guest into your home, um, we receive the person of Christ. That is, that's the meaning of the Hebrew, I'm sorry, the Greek terms that are used there. And then John 3.16 and saying, whoever believes in him is not saying just believing and trusting what he says, as the Greek word there can actually be translated as believing into him. Uh, it has the idea of trust that goes into and rests in Jesus as a person, all that he is, all that he does. Um, there's also passages that speak of coming to him, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So to summarize that, there has to be a basic understanding of the facts of the gospel. There has to be agreement with those facts, agreeing that they are true, uh, particularly that uh, I'm a sinner that needs to be saved and I can't save myself. Uh, but Christ has paid the price for that sin, and only he can save me. I need to understand and agree uh, that I have to trust in Christ alone and his payment for sin on the cross, that he's the only way of salvation, and yet that's still not enough. I need to desire that salvation that is in Christ and make a decision of the will to depend on, to trust in, to place faith in Christ to save me. Now, as I said earlier, uh, repentance and faith are both involved in conversion. can't have one without the other. In turning to Christ in faith to save us from sin, we are at the same time turning uh, away from the sins that necessitated Christ's salvation. The idea that you can have one without the other, uh, particularly that you can have faith without turning from sin, or that you can trust Jesus as Savior but not as Lord, uh, which is the idea of cheap grace or free grace, um, that's not taught in Scripture. And a few years back, that was certainly the topic of controversy in the evangelical world. Uh, there was a huge debate going back and forth, particularly with John MacArthur leading, um, leading the camp against that, the act actually leading the biblical camp that says you have to repent, you have to turn from sin, and you must submit to Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord. Um, again, Jesus' words make that clear in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. In John 3.36, also, uh, you don't hear this quoted very often, um, following right after John 3.16, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Then Matthew eleven twenty eight through twenty nine, come to me, all who labor and um, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So coming to Jesus involves taking on His yoke, which is being subject to His direction and guidance, going where He tells us to go, um, being obedient. To him. And then Jesus said 
in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So repentance and faith are both involved as, an inseparable, as, as inseparable aspects of true conversion. Spiritual change from an unbelieving sinner to a one who trusts in, follows, and obeys Christ, again, involves both repentance and faith. Now, next in the order of salvation is justification. Justification is uh, the legal act of God in which he, number one, considers our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to or applied to us. And then number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. The fact that justification is a legal declaration of righteousness is supported by Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul doesn't say here that God makes sinners internally righteous or morally perfect because if he did that, then they would deserve salvation, but he justifies the ungodly. He declares the ungodly to be justified. He declares that their sin has been paid for and that they are righteous, not because of anything in them, but based on um, their faith in Christ. Romans 8, 33-34 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. To condemn in this passage is to say someone is guilty and the opposite of condemnation is justification, which is, again, to declare someone not guilty. So justification is a legal declaration, not actual experiential righteousness. And that legal declaration has two parts. First, God declares that our sins have been paid for, so we no longer have to pay for or suffer punishment for that sin. And that's, that's all sin, all sin, past, present, and future. Uh, we're no longer condemned because of sin. Romans 8, 1, and you'll hear that read again in this morning's main worship service. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 4, 6 through 8, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, Apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul is saying that justification clearly involves the forgiveness of sin. But that would only solve, actually solve part of the problem. Having forgiven our sin would make us morally neutral before God. But being morally neutral doesn't uh, grant us favor with God. So the second part of justification is that God not only renders us morally neutral by forgiving our sin, but he also declares us to be righteous in his sight, and thereby we merit God's favor. Not that we are righteous. Black Corolla.
We're not righteous, but he declares us to be righteous. Uh, that's the meaning of the passages such as um, 61, Isaiah 61.10. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And Romans 3.21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And Romans 4, 3, or what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Romans 5, 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And in this verse, uh, you can see that the reason that God is able to declare sinners righteous as that second aspect of justification is because of the righteousness, the perfect obedience of Christ. And that has been imputed or placed on us. Uh, we're covered by Christ's righteousness, not our own righteousness. God regards Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. This doesn't mean that we are righteous. doesn't mean that we've done anything righteous, but we're declared righteous because we're covered by Christ's righteousness through faith and by God's declaration. And that's Romans 4, 5 through 6. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing, the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then Romans 5.17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is a non-negotiable aspect of the gospel. God declares us justified, forgiven, and righteous, not because we're righteous or holy, because we continue to sin even after salvation, but we're declared righteous because of Christ's perfect righteousness Christ's holiness, which he declares as belonging to us. And that justification is also by God's grace, grace alone, um, because it's been said repeatedly already, we're incapable of earning it. Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that justification, the legal declaration of righteousness we receive by grace is through faith. That's in Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. We're justified, we're declared Forgiven for sin, we're declared righteous based on the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, and that is all by grace through faith in Christ. Then, as a result of election, calling, regeneration, conversion, and justification, we are adopted by God. Justification gives us um, right legal standing 
before God, but adoption makes us members of God's family. And that's the definition of adoption. Adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. And this is mentioned in the first chapter of John, John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, to the, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, on the other hand, those who are not children of God are described as children of wrath in Ephesians 2.3. And Jesus makes that contrasting point in John 8. 42 through 44, when he says, if, talking to the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me. But in fact, you are of your father, the devil. Now, the believers are now members of God's family. It is found throughout the New Testament over and over again. And one passage that expands on that reality is Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And just as justification is by faith, so we receive adoption by faith. Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We're saved, justified, and adopted by faith, and the evidence of our adoption is the Holy Spirit's testimony in our hearts. Galatians 4.6-7, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So as a result of uh, adoption, being made members of God's family, Jesus speaks of us as his brothers. In Hebrews 2.12, Jesus is referred to essentially as our older brother in Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And there's also a sense in which our adoption is yet to be fully realized. Romans 8.23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So our adoption is fully realized in our resurrection and glorification, which we'll get to. Being adopted into God's family means that we also now inherit or are the beneficiaries of certain privileges, many privileges, as God's children. And certainly the greatest privilege is the fact that we can now or are related to God as a good and loving father. He is our father, no longer our judge. And that's the essence of how Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, 9, our father in heaven. God, as our good and loving Father, is the foundation for our other privileges and blessings as believers. The fact that He is our Father means that He loves us, He understands us, He has compassion for us. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. As our Father, He knows what we need. 
He provides for us. He blesses us with good gifts. That's Matthew 6.32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Matthew 7.11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And as God's children, we now have an inheritance in heaven, and we are described as fellow heirs with Christ. All that Christ will inherit, we inherit. Galatians 4, 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. In Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Our inheritance is also sure and eternal, 1 Peter 1, 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And as fellow heirs with Christ, members of God's royal family, we will also reign and rule with him. Revelations 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. All true believers will ultimately conquer sin and death following in Christ's resurrection. Um, another privilege of adoption is that we are now led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit to kill sin and pursue uh, righteous living. Romans 8, 14, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We also receive the privilege of being disciplined by our Father. Disciplined for our good, although that discipline can sometimes and often is painful. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, fatherly discipline is painful, but uh, it produces holiness in us. It prepares us for heaven, prepares us to be in his presence. And then another privilege of adoption is that we share Christ's suffering and we share in his glory. Romans 8, 17, which quoted earlier, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So as adopted children, those are the privileges that we have. All believers are also now brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in this huge, massive family of God. And that's the main way that the New Testament refers to believers, brothers and sisters. The church uh, itself is essentially one huge family contributing to the needs of the family, engaged in the family business, which is gospel work. And uh, that is all done for the pleasure and glory of the Father. Now, finally, as adopted children, we are able to, and we are required to imitate our Father in righteous conduct. 
Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So that's adoption. And then the next step in the order of salvation is sanctification. And there's a, there's a big difference in sanctification and all the previous steps of salvation. Uh, the difference is that everything else takes place at the beginning of our life as believers and is totally a work of God, whereas sanctification is progressively taking place over the entire course of our lives on earth, and it is a work that we take part in. Okay? We contribute to our sanctification. We cooperate in it. And theologians refer to this distinction as monergistic, monergistic is something that is solely the work of God, and synergistic, synergistic is cooperation between God and man. The definition of sanctification is the progressive work of God and believers that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual daily lives. Sanctification does have a definite uh, beginning, which takes place at regeneration and conversion. Uh, that involves a break with the old sinful life, sinful patterns of life, and being set apart for God. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Romans 6.11, 14 and 18, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Having been set free from sin in the beginning stage of sanctification means that we can now overcome sinful patterns. We're no longer slaves to sin. We can now, we can live in obedience to God, whereas before we could not. So if we say something like we can't stop sinning or we can't get victory over a particular sin in our life, basically we're saying that Scripture is not truthful or we're denying the truth of Scripture. Scripture says that we're free from sin. We don't have to be under its dominion any longer. So that's the initial break with sin, uh, being set free from sin's dominion and control. And then, as I said before, over the course of a believer's life, the believer is to increasingly kill sin experientially in our daily lives and pursue righteous living. That is something that we do. It's an action that we take. Now, we can't do that on our own. It is through the empowerment of the Spirit it's not an attitude of let go and let God, though. We have to work at it. Paul says in Romans 6, 12 through 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Romans 6, 19, for just as you once presented your members 
uh, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. In Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And again, 1 Peter 1.15, be holy in all your conduct. And then virtually every command or exhortation in Scripture is part of that requirement or responsibility uh, that we have to contribute to our sanctification through obedience, working out our salvation. And as we grow in sanctification, we, we become more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Sanctification takes place uh, over the course of our lives as believers, and no two believers experience the same rate or growth in sanctification. Some progress faster than others. Some progress further than others. But all true believers do experience progress in sanctification. We all experience growth in holiness. And sanctification is not completed until death or Christ's return, as there will always be a remnant of sin in us this side of heaven. Um, but in heaven, when we come before the throne, we will be perfect. We will be perfected. We will be sinless. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I, I said earlier uh, that this uh, sanctification is a cooperative work. We work, but God enables us to work in our sanctification. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, Now may the God of peace who brought again who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So God works in us, but we have to work. Now, another aspect of salvation is perseverance. True believers uh, will continue in the faith to the end of their lives, and uh, there may be extended periods of sinfulness, uh, prodigal sinfulness, but ultimately they will continue to trust and obey. Uh, and this is, this is also a work of God, which is evident in, in the perseverance. It's not something we can do on our own. The definition is of perseverance is perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end, uh, until the end of their lives, that only those who persevere until the end of their lives have been truly born again. 
Jesus says in John 6, 38 through 40, that those that believe in him or have saving faith that we talked about earlier will have eternal life, and he will raise them up on the last day. John 10, 27 through 29, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I would say that that includes the individual himself. So those that follow him have eternal life. No one can snatch them away from him. And throughout this doctrine of the order of salvation, we've seen that it's all a work of God's grace, not dependent on anything good in us. Uh, if our salvation was not dependent on anything good in us, our perseverance is also not dependent on anything good in us. God elects, he regenerates, he calls, he converts, he justifies us, and we do contribute to our growth in sanctification. And that's the gist of Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And since our salvation is not something we contribute to, it follows that truly born-again believers could not and would not do anything to lose that salvation. If we could lose our salvation, we would. And Philippians 1.6, as well as many other passages, give assurance of eternal security based on God's work and not ours. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, at the same time, perseverance is evidence of saving faith. One verse that makes that clear is Matthew 10, 22, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Colossians 1, 22 to 23 says basically the same thing. On the other hand, uh, evidence that one is not a true believer would be a failure to persevere in the faith to the end of life. They depart from their professed faith at some point and never return. Or there's a lack of any spiritual fruit that would indicate that there has actually been a spiritual um, regeneration or spiritual change. And that's what's indicated in John 15, 1 through 7. Jesus talking about uh, the branches that don't bear fruit. And Hebrews 6, 4 through 9, those who tasted the gifts of God but then fell away. Never truly believers. And then finally, uh, glorification. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It's what we all look forward to. It will happen when Christ returns, when he raises from the dead uh, the bodies of all believers for all time who have died. He reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. That's the culmination of salvation in Romans 8.30. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorification is the complete victory over sin, death, and its effects, which is the point of resurrection. And in that resurrection, our conformity to Christ is complete. We're made sinless, and we have resurrection bodies like his. The main passage that speaks about glorification and resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15, 
12 through 58. You need to read through that on your own. I'm not going to read all of it, but verses 51 and 52 say, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glory, glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And that means that we will be like him in sinlessness and like him in our physical bodies probably the shortest treatment of glorification ever, uh, but that also wraps up uh, the order of salvation. So, any questions? Yes, ma'am. I think it's, it is vital that one understands that Jesus was truly God and that he was man. Um, have to understand that man is separated from God by sin and under his judgment. We have to understand that Christ fully paid the price and he was able to do that because he was God and man. As far as fully understanding the Trinity, nobody does. And we may not even understand it fully in heaven. Um, and some of the other, you know, complexities of theology I don't think are vital, but certainly understanding and believing that Jesus was God, uh, to deny that or fail to believe that, and to believe that he was fully man. That's, then we're not trusting in that he was able to fully atone for our sin. It was necessary for him to be God and man in order to accomplish that. Well, yeah, but it's not, it's not a blind faith. It's not trusting in something that's not clearly revealed. You know, it's not a leap into the darkness. It's based on historical fact, you know, evidence of his divinity is clearly recorded in Scripture. And uh, Scripture is a more reliable historical source than any other historical document from 2,000 years ago. Right, and that's, that's what I was saying, that 
Well, I know, I know a whole lot more now than I did than I did 50 years ago when I became a believer. And I continue to grow. And we all do. But those basic, sort of basic facts of the gospel, you know, that, that's what's necessary. And uh, otherwise, you know, in order to find, to achieve true salvation, saving faith, you know, everybody would have to go to seminary and, you know, study for years and years before they could come to saving faith. So the basic facts of the gospel. Uh, it's just another, just another term for it. Preservation speaks more of God's work in, in accomplishing that. He preserves us until the end. Perseverance, you know, speaks, indicates our effort in it, which is, is, not, is probably not accurate. That's why... Um, that term has been adopted over perseverance. Perseverance of the saints came from, you know, Tulip back in the day. Well, we preserve, we persevere because God sustains us, sustains our faith. We would lose our faith if God did not sustain us. Anything else? Okay. Uh, next week, Dan Eads will be in here, our missionary. Um, and uh, so this, then the last class will be in two weeks. Okay. Dismissed.